Our scripture reading today will be on John chapter 1, verses 10 to 18. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in him, in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me and ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, New Hope. I want to invite you to pray with me. Father, we have just heard words revealed from you to us about the identity of Jesus Christ. We ask that by your spirit, you would move us, that you would open up our eyes in wonder. Because we confess, Lord, that we don't naturally drift towards wonder. We drift towards distraction. We drift towards complacency and a million other things. Lord, we can be singing words magnificent truth, eternal truth about who you are and what you've done. And somehow, while our mouths are voicing these words, we can be thinking about a million other things. Lord, is, is LeBron going to make it out of the first round? What's gonna, what am I going to eat later on today? A million other things can flood our minds, Lord. We ask that you would captivate us, that you would take a hold of our minds and our hearts by your spirit so that we would be mesmerized and brought to wonder at who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We ask that knowing that you alone are able to do it. And we ask in confidence because we know you love to do that. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a question as we start today. The question is this, if there is a God, how can you know him? Will you think about that question today? If there is a God, how can you know him? John the Apostle, who wrote these words that Mo just read to us in the Gospel of John, and he wrote four other books of the Bible, he, John the Apostle, knew God. He, he did not just know who God is, John knew him intimately. He knew God experientially and personally. 
And he wrote this gospel because he, he wanted those, everyone who read that gospel, to also know God in the same way. And in fact, he tells us this. Look at what it says in John chapter 20, verse 31. John says, but these things are written. He wrote this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Do you, do you ever wonder about who God is? Perhaps you're skeptical about some of the, the beliefs that some people have about God. Or, or maybe you're skeptical, skeptical about the existence of God to begin with. John is saying here, you need to hear this story. Because in this book, John doesn't just, he's not just recording a, a religion that he inherited or a religion that he developed. He's telling us about a person, Jesus Christ, who changed his life forever. In fact, this man, Jesus Christ, didn't just change John's life. He changed history. We, we count time based on the birth of Jesus Christ. He is the most widely known name on the planet. Who he is is worth us thinking about on a Sunday afternoon and every day. So John tells us that if we believe what he says about this man, Jesus, if we believe that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of God, then we're going to be changed as well. You'll be transformed. In fact, he puts it this way. He says, if you believe this, you will have life. Which means if you will know God... And, and life as it's meant to be will begin for you. And it begins with you believing Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of you, as we, we gather every Sunday, a lot of you have already believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John's gospel is for you as well, if you have already believed. Because the fact is that, in one sense, we never get past the point of belief. It's always about faith in Jesus. It's always about believing in Jesus. And yet, our belief in Jesus is meant to mature. It's meant to deepen over time as we see more and more of who he is. That's why we're looking at this book together. So that whether it's for the very first time or so that it's for the, the, the thousandth time, the goal is the same. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why the Gospel of John matters for all of us, no matter where we are with regard to what we think about who God is or who Jesus Christ is. So John, the apostle, he can't wait to tell us about Jesus Christ. And, and what we saw last week is that he, he takes us in the Gospel of John right into the deep end with some very complex spiritual truths. John is unique in this sense. If you look at the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, what you'll see is that those Gospels, they start out by telling you about Jesus' family, or they start out by telling you about Jesus' birth, or about the work that Jesus did when he first started his, what we might call his earthly ministry. But John is totally different from all of those. Because John takes us way back to the very beginning, before the world was formed. And he tells us, listen, Jesus Christ existed before the world did. 
In fact, Jesus always existed with God. And what's more, not only did he exist with God, he is God. Now, some people say that Jesus himself never claimed to be God. That that, that, that idea was something that was added by his followers, people like John and others later on in history. But as we walk through the Gospel of John, we're going to see that Jesus himself makes this very claim about himself. He calls himself God, and he receives worship as God. John calls him the Word, which is an interesting name for Jesus. Jesus has many names in the Bible. Word is one of them. And it's a particularly interesting one. And we're going to unpack why John calls him the Word in a moment. But for now, I just want you to look at verse 14. The very beginning of verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So so here we are in the deep end, so to speak. This is unfathomable spiritual truth. Jesus is God. He is the pre-existent, eternal creator. And yet he became a human being. It's what theologians in the church for years have called the incarnation. God takes on well, in, in, in Portuguese and Spanish, we, we say carne. Carne means meat. It means flesh. The incarnation is God taking on meat and bones. Infinite deity takes on humanity. And that's what the word flesh means here. He took on skin and bones, and, and he became a human in every sense of the word. He did not just look like a human. He became a human. The creator God had a digestive system. He experienced backaches. And he had stuff in his eyes when he woke up in the morning. He experienced the common cold. He experienced sleep deprivation and and muscle fatigue. He was fully human. Now, Now, I don't know which part of that is harder for you to fathom and to believe. Is it that God is eternal? Always existed? Or that God became a human being? Which one's harder to believe? I know my son once said to me, he said, I get the idea that God existed forever. Oh, no, he said, I'm sorry, I'm getting it wrong. He said, I I get the idea that God will exist forever into the future. That's easy to kind of comprehend. God never ends. But, But what I don't get is the idea that God never had a beginning. That he always existed. He said, that makes no sense. I had to agree with him. Yeah, it doesn't. But the best I can do to try to explain to my son and to myself and to you is the very fact that this idea of time, this concept that things happen one after the other chronologically, and that time is this thing that moves forward in, in that way, that's God's idea. He came up with that. To us, it's a foundational truth. We don't know how to live without the concept of time. God came up with that. And when John says he became flesh and dwelt among us, he's saying that Jesus stepped from outside of time into time. From outside of creation, he stepped into creation and lived in what he himself had designed and made. In fact, this phrase, he dwelt among us, 
It literally means, in John's original language, it means that God pitched a tent among us. And the reason he uses that language of setting up a tent is because back in the Old Testament, Exodus 25, God tells us, he tells his Hebrew people back there in Exodus to build a tent. He calls it a tabernacle. It's really just a very big, ornate, complex tent. He says, build this tabernacle, and and he says, make this so that I may dwell in your midst. Build this tabernacle, I will come and dwell in it around you, amongst you. So he gives the people these very specific instructions. And and, and once this tabernacle is erected, at the very end of the book of Exodus, it says this. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And it says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And listen, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is what John is alluding to here. He's saying this is how God dwelt among his people back in the Old Testament. He filled the tent with his glory. But John is saying God has dwelt with his people again. But this time his glory is filling a human body. This is shocking. It would have been incredibly shocking to the people who first read this. The glory of God indwelling a human body, God taking on flesh so that he could live with and embrace and laugh with and teach and heal and do life with people like us. I recently read about a woman in California in the Bay Area whose apartment lease was up and her rent was very high and she didn't want to renew her her lease. She didn't want to get a new apartment. She wanted to save some money and um, she wanted to pay off some debt. So what she did is she bought a tent And she pitched that tent and became a part of this homeless community where they all lived in tents together. Even though she had a job, she decided to become homeless. So for about a year, this woman lived in a tent and she dwelt amongst these other tent dwellers. And it reminded me of the fact that God inhabited a tent too, but the tent is skin and bones, a body like ours, this kind of tent. That's what verse 14 is telling us. Verse 14 actually is the central verse in this whole section of Scripture. It's one of the most important verses in this whole book of John. But what we need to ask is this. Why did God do this? Why did God take on flesh? Why does that even matter that God took on flesh? That woman in California I was telling you about, she didn't want to pay three grand a month for this tiny studio apartment she was living in. So she humbled herself, she lowered her social status, and she faced some serious hardship in order to make her life better in the long run living in this tent. And she learned some things along the way. But why would God do this? Why would God lower his status? Why would God take on this kind of hardship? Why would God humble himself in this way? What did he stand to gain? Well, we're going to see in John chapter 1 that it wasn't about what he had to gain at all. We'll see that it was all about what he had to give and what we stood to gain. So this little section of At the beginning of the John's Gospel, it gives us at least three reasons for why the Word took on flesh. Why did God become a human being? Three reasons, I believe, are in this little section. 
One, he did it to show us. Two, to give. And three, to welcome. To show, to give, to welcome. Show, give, and welcome. So let's see what this all means. Verse 14, I'm going to read it one more time. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, and then let's, let's just jump down to uh, verse 18. It says in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So why did God take on humanity? He did it to show us who he is. The word took on flesh to show us who God is. He makes himself known by revealing visibly, tangibly, in the man, Jesus Christ. Listen, if we are going to know who God is, we need revelation. Apart from revelation, we will never know God. We need him to show himself to us. Now, the good news is that God has always been revealing himself to humanity from the very start. He has always wanted people to know about him. God has always been communicating. He tells us and he shows us who he is through nature, through creation. You know what Psalm 19 says? It says that the, the heavens declare the glory of God. So you look up at the sky and it tells you something about who God is. It speaks to you, reveals something to you. It doesn't reveal everything you need to know about God, but it reveals some stuff about God, like the fact that he's powerful, like the fact that he's very, very creative, the fact that he's very, very good. But that's not enough. We need to know more about who God is than just a beautiful spring sky can tell us. So God tells us about himself through prophets. Throughout the Old Testament, God revealed himself. He spoke through men and women that he gave messages to and said, tell my people these things so that they'll know who I am. But God wanted to reveal more. He wants to show us and tell us more. And that's where Jesus Christ comes in. Because it says in Hebrews chapter 1, at the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, it says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's revelation. God revealed himself to us by the prophets and in many other ways. But, verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The, the son here is just another name for Jesus. And what this verse is telling us is that God is showing us more of who he is through Jesus. God is a communicating, revealing God. He continues to communicate and reveal. But the, the, the high point of his self-revelation is right here. Jesus, the man. And here's how, where we need to think about why John calls Jesus the word. Why the word? It's such an odd term. So here's, here's why. First of all, we need to think about this. John wrote to a mixed crowd, ethnically and religiously. He's writing this gospel for Jews who are very religious, but he's also writing it for Gentiles, for, for non-Jews who are Greek-speaking, um, living in the first century in the Roman Empire. And this term that he uses here, word, 
In, in Greek, it's, the word is logos. And for Greek-speaking non-Jewish people, logos had a lot of meaning. It was an important word. It was a familiar word with a, with a complex, kind of slippery meaning. Philosophers, Greek-speaking philosophers, they, they had observed many centuries before this, they had observed that the universe around us, it doesn't operate just by chance. They, they, they observed that the universe is not chaotic. The, the, these philosophers noticed that the, the universe is in fact ordered. There, there's purpose behind it. There's something rational about the way the universe operates. In other words, there's something behind the universe that gives it order, that gives it meaning. And, and, and one philosopher named Heraclitus, I don't know if he was the first one to use this term, but he called that, that thing that, that, that lends meaning and purpose and order to the universe, he said that thing, that's the word. That's logos. John is telling these Greek-speaking readers that what gives the universe order and meaning, this logos, is Jesus Christ. He is the word. Now, this would have shocked Greek-speaking people. Because it means that the thing that stands behind and holds the universe together, it gives it purpose. It's not really a thing at all. It's a person. It's in fact God. And it's a God who took on flesh. This is captured beautifully in one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. This is talking about Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, By Jesus all things were created. In heaven and on earth. Visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's at the center of everything. And then it says in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the logos. He is what brings meaning and purpose and order to the vast universe. And beyond. The Logos became flesh to show us who the Creator God is. But when John wrote these words, he wasn't just writing to, um, to philosophy nerds, he was also writing to deeply religious people who maybe knew nothing about philosophy at all. He's writing to Hebrew people, and the word Logos or word had deep meaning for them as well, slightly different meaning. You see, because for Jews in the first century, when they hear the word, they're going to think the word of God. In the Old Testament, the way that God is often described as acting, acting powerfully, moving, uh, is, is through his word. For instance, in Genesis, how, how does God create in Genesis? It says he, he spoke the world into existence, right? He speaks light into existence. It's, his word has creative power. Look at what it says in Psalm 33, verse 6. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So Jews are reading this and they're saying, The word, that's the word that we know. We, the word that we know is God's creative power. 
by which he made everything. But the word isn't only, God didn't just create by his word, he does other things by his word too. Look what it says in Psalm 107. It said, he, God, sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. You see, God's word doesn't just have creative power. God's word has the power to heal. God's word has the power to rescue. John takes this term, God's word, and he applies it to Jesus. Because he wants us to see that God moves powerfully to create, to heal, to rescue, to show himself through Jesus Christ. He's the embodiment of God's creative, rescuing, healing, revealing word. It's been said that, um, you've heard this, a person is only as good as their word, right? You can measure someone's character by whether or not they, they keep their word. I think that's true, but I also, I say that with like shame, and it's actually sad for me because I know that, and maybe you can re- relate to this, for many of us, there's often a gap between our promises and our actions. We don't always deliver on what we say, do we? Sometimes because we can't, or sometimes because we forget, there's a gap between what we claim and what we do. And so that's led people to say, well, you know, talk is cheap. You can claim and make promises and say you're going to do stuff, but it's all cheap until I actually see it happen. It's not so with God. There's no gap. There's no difference between what God says and what he does. God does not need to back up his words with action. God's words are action. They create. They rescue. They accomplish salvation. They heal When God says something, it is done. And Jesus is the personification of that word. John, one of the things John is telling us is that God reveals himself. He speaks truthfully to us in and through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1 puts it beautifully. It says, for no matter how many promises God has made, God has made tons of promises, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen, amen means so be it. The amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. You see, Jesus is the the personification, the, the, the visible, tangible fulfillment of God's every promise. If you doubt God that he will actually follow up with what he says, look at Jesus. He's the so be it. It is done. He's the personification of God's every promise fulfilled. In short, God's word in in the Old Testament, it's um, it's his powerful self-expression in creation, in salvation, So John, when he takes this term, the word, and he puts it on Jesus, he's telling us, listen, God has disclosed himself. He's he's revealed himself to you. He is showing you who he is in Jesus Christ. Here's another way to think about it. We all like to present ourselves in the best possible light. 
People, I think, have always had the tendency to do this. Um, I think social media kind of amplifies this because social media allows you, it gives you the opportunity to present a self to the world that is much better than the actual self. It always looks good. We present the best version of ourselves, uh, uh, many of us do, often do, the best version of our lives online. Sometimes I look at um, someone's selfies and you don't recognize them. You're like, is that really you? I can't tell. The filter and like the angle, this is, this is beautiful, but I don't, is it you? Our kids in these online pictures, I know my, they're, they're cute and they're clean and our houses look neat and tidy and our marriages look so fun and like delightful and peaceful online. Not always the case, right? I, I posted just this afternoon, I posted a picture of my family, um, of, my, of Delimar, my wife, and, and, and our kids uh, in front of this tree that just opened in front of our house for the first time. It blossomed for the first time. We were astounded by how beautiful this tree is. I think it's a magnolia tree. And so we were taking a picture in front of it, and I posted it. And I said, this picture looks beautiful. Look, the tree looks beautiful. The children, my wife, gorgeous. Everything's wonderful. And you might look at it and think, oh, that's a, that's a nice picture. What you won't know is that one of my kids, like milliseconds before I, I hit the shutter button, one of my kids was provoking the other, got yelled at, mom and dad were angry, we're all angry in that picture, you can't tell, but every single one of us, except for maybe the baby, the baby's all right, the rest of us are like, just take the picture, let's go. But you don't see that, because we're presenting a very, we're presenting the best version of ourselves, right? God is not presenting a version of himself, a cleaned up and photoshopped version of himself in Jesus. Jesus is the real deal. When you see him, you see who God really is, the exact revelation of the creator God. And, and, and here's something, maybe a takeaway from this idea, because it's all very theoretical. Maybe you think of God as an abstract concept. If you think of them that way, I want to encourage you to read the Gospel of John carefully, prayerfully. And as you look at Jesus in the pages of this book, you, look at his, you see his compassion played out in very tangible ways. You see his wisdom. You see his power to heal, to rescue. You see his heart towards people. Recognize the fact that that is divine revelation. That is God showing himself to you, and it's the real him. And the more you get to know Jesus in the pages of this gospel, the more his words will mean to you throughout the rest of the Bible. You see, the more you get to know him in the, in the gospel of John, the more when you go back and read his word in other places of the Bible, it'll have more impact, it'll mean more. You know how once you get to know someone, their words are more impactful? Someone might make a promise to you or tell you something, and you file it away and you say, great. But once you get to know that person, you get to understand what they're about. You get to understand what their values are and what they think is important and how they feel about you. You start to get to know their character. Now, their words are going to mean something to you. Either their actions and their character are going to cause you to question their word, or they're going to make their word all the more weighty and trustworthy. As you see who Jesus is more and more in the Gospel of John, you will come to find that his word is much more impactful, much more, much more trustworthy and powerful than you actually ever believed. God doesn't just come to us in the flesh 
to show us who he is. He also comes in the flesh to give us something. To give us. Look at what it says in John chapter 1, verse 16. Verse 16. Um, earlier, by the way, John says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Maybe you remember this when Moe's reading. You can look at He came full of grace and truth. Then in verse 16 here, he says this. He says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do you see the, the, the love and the kindness in these words? This is telling us, that God is telling us that Jesus didn't just come to show us God. He came to give us what only God can give us. He came to give us what we desperately need, grace and more grace, and more grace. That's what grace upon grace means, and more grace, and more grace. Unlimited amounts of grace. Jesus has come to give us. And grace just means it's that unearned goodness and blessing for ill-deserving people, for people who deserve the opposite. You see, Jesus didn't come, God didn't become a man and come into the world to get anything from us. That's how we often are. We, we are kind to people when we need something from them sometimes, aren't we? Like we give something because we see something that we need and we're hoping to get it in return. Or we're kind to people who have proven their goodwill and their loyalty to us. They've shown that they're good people. And so we want to bless them by giving to them. But that's not how God operates at all. You see, earlier in history, God communicated the law to his people. John is talking about that here in this section. Where he says the law came through Moses, was given through Moses. The law... It's short for the, the, the vast collection of commandments, the authoritative instructions that God gave to us to tell us how to live. The, the, these are instructions, by the way, that every one of us has broken. They're summarized in the, there, there are hundreds and hundreds of them, but they're summarized in the Ten Commandments. You can read them there. They're these detailed instructions for how we ought to live. And that law, by the way, before we move on, just notice that law, when God gave it to his people, he gave it to them to show them what kind of God he is. It was revelation. It was him saying, look at these instructions for life and you will see what kind of God I am. In his law, he shows us that he's a God who loves honesty and loyalty and justice and, and generosity. And, and he, when he gives us that law, he's revealing to us that in each of these areas, he is perfect. We are not. The, the law shows us just how holy and unlike us he is. He is the God who has never broken any of his own commandments. But God's law also was, was further uh, summarized. It was boiled down into two basic commandments. You know what these are? Jesus summarized all the law, all ten commandments, and all the 600 or more so more specific commandments. He summarizes them this way. He says, the whole law is basically just two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
In other words, love God with all you have and love other people the way you love yourself. But even when we boil down the law to just those two things, we have to admit that we have fallen woefully short in both of those areas today. The law it doesn't only show us who God is, it show us our own, shows us our own failure to live up to the glory of who he is. But in the face of that failure that the law reminds us of every time we read it, Jesus comes and he gives us grace and more grace and more grace. In the face of our failure, Jesus comes. The law came through Moses and showed us God's holiness and showed us our woeful failure. Jesus comes full of grace upon grace upon grace. Now, it also says here that he came bearing, uh, he came with, with grace and truth or truth and grace. So, so we can't get John wrong here. Jesus gives us lots of truth as well, not just grace. He speaks the whole truth, though, Jesus does. Jesus tells us the truth of our sin. Jesus tells us about the truth of our failure. He, he, he tells us about the, the truth of our undeservedness. But Jesus tells us the full truth. He also tells us about the truth of his deep love for failures. He tells us about the truth of his deep love for sinners. The full truth that he befriends and dies for lawbreakers. I said last week that Jesus shines a light into our darkness to expose our shame and our guilt and our sin. I believe he does that. He's not just the word. He is the eternal light. And he shines a spotlight, a searchlight into our hearts to show us where there's sin in the darkness of our hearts. But he does that in order to then bring new life, in order to guide us out of our sin and into a new way of living. But the question I think we need to ask ourselves is, is what is he exposing in us? What is he expo has he been exposing sin in your heart? As he comes with grace and truth, he speaks the, the full, bald-faced truth to you about what's going on in your heart. What is he showing you? What is he revealing? Is he revealing things that, that you don't want him to see? He's revealing things in your heart that you don't want anyone to see. You want to just keep them dark and hidden, and he's, he's putting them on blast before your eyes, and, and you can't help but come face to face with it. As he does that, that's grace. That's kindness. He's revealing the truth of, of, of the, 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 the shame and the guilt and the sin in your heart so then he can come with grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and forgive and transform and heal and rescue. He came full of grace and truth. What an amazing, amazing fact. The inescapable truth, New Hope, is that we need Jesus. And grace means that we can have him. He's not holding himself back from us. In fact, he came to give himself to us. Because the fact is that the, the way that Jesus gives us all this mercy, all this grace, it, it, it's by giving us himself. 
He, he, he takes on our sin, our curse, the penalty for all of our law-breaking, all of our shady living. He takes on all of that. And he gives us forgiveness, righteousness, acceptance to all who would receive him. To all who would receive him. And that takes us to the very last thing that shows up in this passage. The word became flesh to show us who God is, to give us grace and truth, and also, lastly, the word became flesh in order to welcome us. Look at what it says in verse 10. It says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You know, the first half or so of the Gospel of John is filled with all these stories of people who come face to face with Jesus, they see him, and they do not receive him. They reject him. But there are some people in there who do receive him. And, and receiving, the, the, what John is talking about here, just to make it clear, he, 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 he spells it out for us. He says, receiving Jesus, what it means is, it just means believing in his name. Once again, believing that he's the son of God, that he is the Christ. That's what receiving means. It means to truly believe in his name. John tells us that those of us who have received him have found that along with all the grace and the truth that he has to give us, he also extends to us this welcome, a welcome into the family of God. To all who did receive him, he gave the right to be called children of God. Do you know that the, the father has always had only one son? Verse 14 calls him the only son. Elsewhere in the Bible, he's called the beloved. In John 3.16, he's called the only begotten. He is unique. His relationship between God the Father and this unique one and only son, that, that it's, it's an exclusive relationship. And yet the word became flesh to welcome you into that relationship. The Father has become our Father, which means we now have a place at the table, a place in the household, a place in that eternal fellowship between Father and Son. Think about it this way. God entered into our physical reality so that we could enter into this spiritual reality. The, the eternal Son took on flesh, so that flesh like us could take on spiritual life. You see, see what this is, this is more than forgiveness. That's just the start. This is acceptance and full welcome. This is eternal protection and belonging in the family of God. This is why the word became flesh, to show, to give, and to welcome us in.
when we get to John 3, we're going to see a lot more about this, what this new spiritual life means that we get when we believe in Jesus. This new birth, we'll see what it involves. But for now, as we end, I just want to ask you, have you received him? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Many people rejected him. Many people continue to reject him. Have you received him? Because verse 18 tells us that he is the only God. He's not just a God. This is fully exclusive. He is the only God. Jesus is. And what's at stake here? It's life. To receive him is to have life. To reject him is to have the opposite. Death. Separation from God. What's at stake here is this welcome. You see, to to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to be called children. He welcomes us in. To not believe is to not be welcomed in. It's to be kept out. Out of the fullness, the acceptance, the belonging, the forgiveness, the love. We are on the outside of all of that until we receive him. Everything is at stake. It's the most important question that anyone could ever ask you. Who is Jesus and have you received him? John says he's the only God. And I think that that raises another question for us. Maybe you have believed in Jesus, but I would ask you, is he your only God? Does he have an exclusive place where, where, such that he is, the so, he is the only one you worship, the only one you follow, the only one you live for, the only one you really deeply want to glorify and honor? He is at the center. Is he the only God for you, or is he one God amongst other gods competing for attention? Competing for glory in your life. Competing for obedience in your life. Is he the one you obey or are there other many voices that you obey even when it means disobeying him? Is he the only God? I listened to a testimony by Steve Park just last night and he was talking in this, in this video, video recorded testimony about the fact that in his life there were, I don't want to put words in your mouth, brother, but there were, there were competing gods. He called them idols. And what are idols? But they are just things that are not gods but compete to be God. And you treat them like they're God. And they're competing gods like comfort and like money and like his family and like um, career success. And, and he can tell you more about what they are. I know more about my own gods. You can tell everyone about yours, Steve. But the fact is that when he came to a place of realizing, when his own mortality was brought, when he was confronted with his own mortality, all these things that had been competing for the place of God in his life, he began to see that they were all perishable. That is, they all have an expiration date. None of them deserves to be God. None of them deserves to be chased after, worshipped. None of them deserves to be at the center of his life or my life or yours. 
And so the perspective shift took place. And what happened is that Steve was reoriented so that Jesus Christ stepped into, occupied the place he deserves. The only God. The only one worth worshiping, serving, and seeking the glory of. I believe that each of us needs this kind of continual reorientation. I believe that the way that God reorients us is by showing us again and again and again who he is in the person of Jesus Christ. If you have already believed, God has more to show you. God has more to show us about who he is. There's more of us for us to know of him. He has more to reveal to us in his word through Jesus so that we can learn to love him more, so that we will know him more intimately. The fact is that God is much more interested in showing himself to us than we are in seeking or knowing him. Do you want to know and believe in him more deeply, more fully? Then let's pray for that. Let's ask for that as we walk through this book. And we will see that he will continue, Jesus will, to show us, to give us, and to welcome us to himself. Let's pray. Spirit, we ask that you would do what only you could do. You've shown us Christ in your word, but without without your help, we won't see him, we won't honor him, we won't fall on our face and worship him. We will go out and worship a million other things, Lord. Would you do what only you could do, Spirit? Open up our hearts so that we will behold and wonder at the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.